John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 11, Entry 1081.MI0303, Certificate Number 32041, Ronco. We, uh, we talked for a while about the bone phone, a thing, phone. Th- a thing that you continue to try to convince me exists. Uh, the bone phone. It's, uh, it's the, it's a real item. And, uh, if- can't, can't any phone be a bone phone if you're, no. ca- if you're calling the one you love? No, no, that's a different kind of bone and a different kind of phone. No, this is a, this is a radio that, uh, that plays, <laughs> that you wear as a scarf and it plays through your bone. Instead of having a speaker it makes you the speaker. No, it has a speaker. It just pretends that that speaker is playing through your bones. But isn't it? Isn't it also? Isn't it using you as some kind of? Isn't it vibrating through you, or is it not? That is the claim of it. Well, I think there that's are what still I, there are still devices that claim to do this that, that vibrate your head bone. Well, that's what Dave wrote in to to show me because I I had a deep sense of horror at the idea that I guess I don't like the idea. I know on some level that music is just vibration. But I don't want to be reminded of that fact. That, right. That the music music is just something moving. And in fact, it could be my skull. Well, because you're saying, you're like, I don't know whether music is a particle or a wave. Right. And this is saying the music doesn't exist. It's just right. it's just the wave in which my uh, eardrum is moving. Have you ever contemplated how a record player works? I think we've talked about this on the show. I do not believe that record <laughs> players work. Like, what are the odds that you can produce every sound available to the human ear by rubbing a little stylus along a wax groove. Yeah. That has that has little little hills and valleys, little and, dents in it. And yeah, apparently the the size of the dents will affect the sound. I don't believe that for a second. It's the moon illusion of audio recording. Like I've tried to make like, you know, if you have, for example You've tried to make a you've tried to make a sound recording by well, carving into a wax disc. Like my my mouth is very versatile. Yes. As, as they oh, as they tell I'll me. But, but I can't make every sound available. To the human ear with my mouth. Can you make the sound of a crow? Ah, ah. No. If <laughs> that's terrible. You're right. You can't. But so what are the odds then that a little a thing moving in a wax track could make every animal like so if I rub like I, I know that vibrations will cause sound, but if I rub, for example, um a horse hair 
over catgut, yeah. I can get violin. That's sure. the one sound I can get. Uh-huh. And that's normal to me. I wouldn't expect to be able to rub that in a particularly cunning way so that it made saxophone or police siren or, right. or crow. So why, and then why is the record this instrument that can produce all these sounds? Well, There's even, no way it's real. What's even more amazing is that the needle then is connected to electricity, which then moves the sound through electricity to a speaker, which is just a piece of cardboard attached to a magnet. That it can bounce in such a way that it'll make those sounds everywhere. Yeah, and everywhere. it goes, whoa, 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 in a way that makes you think you're listening to Thomas Edison. It's baloney. It's all baloney. It is pretty much baloney. And even more baloney is the bone phone. Because it's making you part of the problem. Yeah. It's implicating my skull bones in the... And, uh, but it, it must be... The the conspiracy lives on because Dave sent us a link to this Indiegogo uh, project, Indiegogo campaign. Is that what you call them? A campaign, yeah. Called the SND Raid, the best hi-fi bone conduction sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. And the picture is actually a pair of, of sunglasses you put on that have four little bone conducting speakers, two at your temples and two at the end of the, the glasses... Uh, what are you? What are, what are the things that temples? No, but not the, what are the things on your glasses that hold them on your head? I don't wear glasses. Temples. They're not called the temples. What the the the, the arm? That, yeah, the arms. Those okay. are temples. The arm of the glasses is called a temple. Yeah. No, your body is your temple. <laughs> anyway, two of the love sp- is a battlefield. Two of the speakers are on your te- are on your actual temples, and then two are at the end of your glasses arms, which you insist are called temples, and I, I can roll with that. It's Siri-enabled, so you can, if you don't like the music your skull is making, you can have Siri make it different music. Well, this is the problem, right? If, you, if the skull is the, is the resonator, every skull is different. Oh, that's true. Every sperm is sacred, and every chi- all the children are our future. You try to play ska on my head, and you'll just get like, what is this burger, crap? Burger, 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 burger. Yeah, so, so, I mean, so your sweet leaf and my sweet leaf can't possibly sound the same, but how would we ever know? How do we know the color I see as blue is the same as the color you see as blue, man? I can never hear, I can never hear Zeppelin through Ken's head, head ears, head bones. Uh, in any case, uh, Indiegogo users have raised so far over $685,000 Wow! to try to get sunglasses that will also make their head a speaker. What I don't understand is where are the freaking uh, AR heads-up display sunglasses that we were all promised? Why can I not walk in downtown Seattle and look at an old building and see metadata about that building called up in my eyepieces? I'm infuriated that all this technology is banding. We're, we're playing Angry Birds on our freaking watches, but what I want is... Google Glass, except A, cool-looking, and B, functional, practical. doesn't have to be amazing. You want to look around at a party and see everybody's Instagram. Social media account. Yeah. Right. I just I want to be able to call up Wikipedia in real time using geolocating so that it says, oh, you're here. Would you like to know about – would you like to see the Wikipedia page for – uh, you know, the, this ship that you're standing next to? My impression is that Google Glass kind of got the interface right, but then we just made fun of it, so it went away like a week later. It we was, did it. It was stupid looking, and here's what Google failed to do. They failed to go to Ray-Ban, the coolest sunglass company. And say, hey, get these temples shaped just right. Yeah, well, just say, like, <laughs> can we use 
your iconic sunglass, uh, the Wayfarer, to be our Google Glass. What do you think the eye part of the frame is called? Do you think the little arms are called temples? The, is it a synagogue? The, no, the, the arms are called temples, and the eye part is called the frame. The frame and the temples. Don't you think it's all the frame? No. No. I mean, the middle part of the frame. I thought everything frame, that was not the glass was the frame. The middle part of the frame is called the bridge. That's, I'll agree with you there. We finally have found one part of eyeglasses that we have the same opinion about. The rest of it is called the frame, except for the lens, and then the, then the wings are called temples. I can't believe that this is some incredible gap in your knowledge. I, I'm going to call Alex Trebek right away. I have uh, a 2010 privilege. <laughs> oh, that's right. Your freaking eyesight. Again, why did you not become a fighter pilot? Entry 721.LK1420. Certificate number 14309. Lilith. We uh, mentioned in this entry when we were talking about Adam and Eve the fact that the Bible never specifies what kind of fruit our friends Adam and Eve actually eat. Is that right? Yeah. It was beets. <laughs> beets are not a fruit. It was, it was fruit beets. If, if it was beets, they would be a root. Right. And it probably wouldn't call it a tree. Well, if you could eat the roots of a tree, what if what you if could? The snake, but they would not be beetroot. Here's what we don't know: Did the snake call it a fruit and feed them beets? How would they know? They've been eating other fruits, John. They can eat every other fruit in the garden hmm. freely, except for the beets. That's <laughs> they mean, would know. They would be like, God, that's fine, but that one is not a fruit. That's I a see. root, and God would be like, You're you're correct. Uh-huh. I take it back. We know it has to be something that grows on a tree. What if the snake pulled up the beets, hung them from trees, and claimed that it was a beet tree? Adam and Eve are dum-dums. I mean, they're they're dumb enough that they got duped by the snake to eat the apple. It's true. Could have been a beet. But before the snake does that, God actually says, oh. there's one tree that has really good fruit, and oh. you can't have it. So if, if, there's a, if there's a prank, God is in on it. As he so often is. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so when we mentioned <laughs> the uh, when we mentioned that the fact that it's an apple is a later uh, interpolation, and and who knows how that happened, we got two responses. Stephen oh. uh, on Twitter noted that it was Milton's fault because in Paradise Lost, Milton does calls it an apple. calls it an apple, and no, and Augustine didn't call it an apple. Nobody's. Well, it is a little more complicated. Lucas actually said he, his Latin professor, told them that it was a Latin pun. And both our correspondents are correct. Milton did popularize the idea that the fruit would be an apple, maybe because he needed it to rhyme. Um, what, needed, what, he needed what it does to it rhyme with? He needed a two syllable. It rhymed with a... Snapple? Snapple, yeah. <laughs> Scrapple. S- said Satan, <laughs> eating a plate of Scrapple. <laughs> Satan's from Pennsylvania. Uh... No, I think he needed to scan. He must have needed a two-syllable word oh, for see. it. But yeah, by his time, it was common, the idea to, to think of it as an apple. And it does have to do with the Latin accident of the word malus, meaning evil as an adjective, right? but as a noun, meaning originally an apple. You, you, could, you could use it to refer to any uh, seed-bearing fruit. You know, a, a pear and a fig and a peach were all kinds of, of malus. 
Why but did, it's specifically an apple. Why did the Latin language uh, have the word for fruit and the word for malice be the same? I think it's an accident. Like, I think it's some kind of just etymological conversion. Oh. Like, I don't think one derives from the other, Wait, necessarily. it's a pun? It's this a pun. right up your alley. St. Jerome. Here's your alley. <laughs> <laughs> My alley is St. Jerome making puns about the book of Genesis. Um, so, you know, so he called it an apple in order to get that malice pun in there, and that's why... Um, in, uh, you know, in some Renaissance art, it's a fig tree, like in the Sistine Chapel frescoes, Adam Eve are next to a fig tree. But as the Renaissance goes on, it settles down and surrounds apples. Albrecht Durer has them in front of an apple tree. So does Lucas Cranach, the elder. So no, wait, for 1500 years within the Christian church in all its permutations and all the, the deliberations they did about whether or not the transubstantiation was true. How and many angels not, could dance on the head of a pin? Yeah, and if there was a Holy Ghost, and if so, what were they doing, and could they prove they were there? And if Casper is a ghost, is he was he a real child, and if so, how did he die? And no one ever said, what kind of fruit was it so that we can... Uh, avoid it? I don't know, avoid it, or at least, like, hat tip as we walk past it on the, on the, the trail to Galilee. Yeah, the implication that it must be an extant fruit is uh, interesting, because you'd think... If that's still the tree of good and evil, then all its descendants would have the same properties. You'd think maybe the, there'd be a tendency to make it just some one-time space fruit tree. One time. Like some weird blue fruit from Star Wars that got taken away as soon as the, the Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Like, maybe I don't know why it has to be a fruit we have. Maybe it's the lychee fruit. You think it's just a very rare fruit? It's like it's, star fruit. You have to go to an Asian grocery tasting. to get it? <laughs> I wonder I wonder if uh, if Christian good and evil fruits are active on a Buddhist population or a or a Taoist population. Well, I mean, even in a Christian population, uh, the oh, right. the fruit being an apple hasn't really kept us away from apples. Well, I, what I'm wondering is, did I have self-awareness and shame before I ate lychee fruit for the first time? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I think can't... you'd notice. Yeah, Adam and Eve immediately notice. Right. They immediately get a new outfit. But I was already clothed because that was the cultural way. I, I mean, I may I didn't feel any more or less shame. I already had underwear on. Anyway, in Paradise Lost, Milton kind of cemented it, and that's it was the the popularity of Paradise Lost as kind of the definitive version of the Adam and Eve story, the fall of Adam that that cemented the apple as the fruit of choice. But it could be, it could be a lychee. It well, could be a. What are the other options? It's not a berry, or it would have said a berry. It's got to be on a tree. So so that gets rid of almost all of your berries. But what about like walnuts? Are they a fruit technically? Fruits and nuts are different. But is a walnut a nut? Or do we just call it a nut? Because wall fruit sounded dumb. Are you saying that, like, is a nut a botanical fruit? Is a nut a fruit? Yes. It's just a, the seed has the seed is surrounded by a harder shell than, than the fleshy fruits we eat. So it could be any nut also. Yes. What, what nut do you think it is? Filbert. It's got to be a tree nut. Um, Filberts are tree nuts. Yeah. Uh, Could be a coconut. Although are coconuts nuts? They are not. But you'd think there would be something in the story about them having to open it. Right. If, right. Eve was banging it on Adam's head. If, and if it was a lemon, there'd probably be something about how um, the taste was disappointing. Yeah. Right. She'd never had that fruit before. So not only was it 
fruit, it was a forbidden fruit. What's the most forbidden of all fruit? Peaches, right? I mean, that's they're the sensualist, most sensual fruit. Sure. Um, Peaches are the ones that convey... Or a banana, if you want the other... Sexiness. If you want the other side of the equation. But bananas are... The, the eating experience is not sensual. They also don't grow on trees. They're... Right. They're... Are they a fruit? Bananas are a fruit. They're a berry. They're a berry. Yes. And we've we've decided that berries are not Well, it's just not included. a lot of, There's just not tree berries out there. I mean, maybe it's a big a big enough blueberry bush that... I don't know. Banana, we call it a banana tree. Is it suggested that they both eat from the same piece of fruit? See, if that was a peach, I mean, we're getting into some Emmanuel in Paris now. Adam and Eve both eating from the same peach? Well, I mean, the sexual connotation of the fruit eating is not in the original story, but it does come pretty was that Milton too? hot on its trail. <laughs> I think by Milton's time, he was aware. Uh, Milton does have Adam and Eve getting it on, but uh, but before they eat the fruit, it's just like, it's super chill. It, it's like really, it's No kids, sweet. no shame. It's, 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 it's like uh, watching two raccoons. It's like uh, the Blue Lagoon. Um, so I'm, I'm in Genesis three right now <laughs> and I'm trying to see if I feel like every she, time you show up here, you're in Genesis one. And by the time you leave, you're in Genesis three. So Eve eats of the fruit and gave also under husband with her heated. So it's not clear that it's the same piece of fruit. It could be a second blueberry from the same branch. I see. I see. Okay. I don't know. Well, we haven't really nailed it down, but, uh, it is, uh, Milton's fault. Yeah. 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 Of course. Like so many things. Entry 524.jb4114, certificate number 35120, George Washington's Teeth. Weren't we considering in the episode what happened to the gold in the gold teeth of the deceased? Yeah. We were talking about what happens to grandma when you send her to the funeral parlor or the crematorium. Oh, yeah. Does the gold all collect at the bottom of the crematorium? Yes. Does the gold get harvested by somebody in advance? Is that how they defray some of their costs I and pass like, the savings along to you, I feel the like survivor? They, yeah, they maybe give you the gold in a little vial that you keep around your neck like Angelina Jolie. We got a note from Edwin who uh, who spent a year, uh, he's a chemist and he spent a year working. Uh, there's a person named Edwin, first of all. Sure. Perhaps the last one. Sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, he spent a, a year, he's a chemist and he spent a year working at a precious metals recovery plant, which is mostly dissolving old electronics, oh, old right. jewelry. Getting the platinum out of your Yeah, precipitating the, the precious metals out of your, <laughs> your <laughs> cast off bone phone. And he says one day his supervisor called him over to show him a tray containing about an inch of teeth. So it's a, like a 12 by 24 inch tray containing a, an inch deep of teeth. Um, lots of teeth, some of which apparently would have had precious metals. And uh, he says upper management had a lack of scruples that would mean that this would be an unsurprising development at his particular recovery plan. He does not name the employer. Where did the teeth come from? These funeral home guys? He does not know the uh, the provenance of the teeth. But he and his uh, coworkers had never extracted precious metals from teeth. They didn't know how to go about it. They thought about which kind of acid would work. And in the end, I guess management decided to send them straight to the melters. So they just... Melted the teeth along with the gold. Straight away. And I guess at that point, there's a way to extract any metals. He says, I, I, don't, I never found out what we got out of them, but I do remember that the burning teeth did not smell good. 
No, I can only imagine that it smells like burning hair except teeth. No, you've smelled burning teeth. Yeah, you've when, been when, at the they, dentist. when they drill you, when they when they use the yeah. thing, and it does kind of smell like burning hair a I, little bit. I would imagine that the teeth would vaporize in in a in any kind of pot hot enough to melt gold. So to answer the question of what happens to grandma's gold teeth, says Edwin, some of them are, not all, but some of them are thrown into an induction furnace by a very tall Armenian man whose name I can't remember. (laughs) Says Edwin. Thank you, Edwin, for for letting us know. But I still want to know how they got from the question mark, question mark, question mark, funeral home, war zone. Sure. To your employer's uh, precious metals extraction Someone's out rolling bums, getting them drunk and and yanking their teeth. Some some, uh, mean Armenian guy at your ex-employer. Uh, Well, let us know uh, if you find out more, Edwin. Entry 1403.PR1401. Certificate number 51993. Marilyn Voss-Savant. Did we decide it was Voss or Voss? I think that you might have said that it was Voss and then we both called it Voss because we're both from that school. The Uh, Voss-Savant school. The... uh one brief note we heard from Doug, I guess, in the show about the the uh, explosion of Marilyn Vosavant onto the American intellectual scene in the mid-'80s, I attributed in part to a lack of public intellectuals at yeah, the time. Yeah, uh, And, you know, because we had already, you know, there was really no Einstein of that era. There was no Stephen Hawking or Bill Nye yet. Right. We had already lost— um, I don't know who the other cultural touchstones would have been, but uh, I mean there were still literary titans, but no. Sure, you like, could see Norman Mailer or, or Gorvid all yelling at each other. Yeah, but no, um, but no, no one who's just like I am smart. But Doug, smart. but Doug points out there actually is one right in that um, time period that we forgot that this was pure Carl Sagan erasure. <gasps> oh, of course, Carl Sagan, and that's exactly right. The ultimate. We did have one. Face of science at that public face of science at that time, and I totally forgot. Oh, he was so reassuring too. He was so calm and smart. And I remember I, the first time I visited Cornell, uh, someone there pointed out Carl Sagan's house, and I stood out in front of it, just kind of like I don't know, paying. And he was still alive. Imagining at the, time. the rows of turtlenecks in the closet upstairs, yeah, and just like like uh, like you would feel if you were outside Mister Rogers's house, like just. I need to stay stand here and like pay tribute to this man who had done so much. When they needed to replace him on Cosmos, they went with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who right. is, you know, probably the most prominent media astrophysicist of our time, but has nothing of his, you know, reassuring demeanor that that I'm a that I'm a, a good guy and want what's best for mankind. Right. Tyson, you know, by all accounts, is actually not the nicest guy in person and loves his kind of smug social media he's smarter than you and you can go to hell i saw him one time i was in a taxi cab in new york city and i was uh sitting at a red light and i looked over and neil degrasse tyson was trying to hail a cab um standing in front of some big media tower and i was like it's neil degrasse tyson maybe i should share your cab john maybe i should say hey want to share a cab and then the light turned green and i was like ah whatever you missed your chance. Sorry, mister. <laughs> you were immediately like, oh, whatever. I like that oh, you live yeah. in the now. Yeah. You, 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 don't, you don't think back and regret, regret that I moment. didn't say, stop, stop. I was like, yeah, yeah, he'll, he'll be fine. Letty had a more substantive note uh, because we, we talked about Mensa briefly, and that's actually going to come back on the Omnibus. We are but, doing um, a Mensa uh, show coming up here. You so loved the Mensa content in the Maryland show. Well, what's, what's too bad is that the, um, 
that a lot of the Facebook community used the Marilyn Voss Savant uh, episode to like, talk about Mensa. Yeah, throw all their Mensa content on the on the carpet. And uh, as we predicted, there are a lot should, of Mensa defenders. They should have kept one in their in their knapsack. Because now we're gonna Mensa's gonna come out and they're gonna have to uh, regurgitate all that stuff. All uh, their own personal stories. Uh, Letty sent us her story of being a member of Mensa in the late 70s, which is perfect because this is, you know, right around the time Marilyn would have been coming up through the societies of the super intelligent. Right. So she's a she's a, a peer and a woman peer of of uh, of Marilyn's. Um, Letty says she didn't have the certified RQ results they needed. So they, they Mensa actually provided entry, uh, info where she could get tested. They sent her to some test facility. Which they still do. And, yeah. they, and they certified her at 1%, um, which entitled her to join not only Mensa, the top, top, which was 98 percentile, but also Intertel, apparently a 99 percentile sub-Mensa of the era. Uh-huh. Um, but she's very pro-Mensa. This is her take. This may sound boring and stuffy, but for a young woman who had just moved to a new place, she was new in the Beltway, in the BC area, it was a godsend because Mensons gave a lot of parties. I'm not sure if that's still true. No, I I feel that. And sure, there was a fair number of nerds, but they were most mostly normal, fun-loving people. And spe- speaking here as a woman, I think she was maybe in short supply. I met a lot of guys to date. I haven't been a member for nearly 40 years, but I'm grateful they were around when I needed them. So it's it's a kind of a testimonial to Mensa as a kind of uh, social network yeah. for. Uh, you know, a young person just starting out and wondering where the like-minded people are. I've seen this happen with the Jonathan Colton cruise, uh, where that's it, the new in- international waters Mensa. Yeah, it became a kind of where anything goes default place uh, that you you could uh, you found a safe haven if you were really into puzzles and Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of what I imagine those those early Mensa meetings were too. We also got a note from. David in Portland. Uh, I don't know how specific I should be about this, but we mentioned uh, a Mr. Herb Weiner or Weiner who owns a who owned a, a stridently anti Marilyn Vosavant website uh, in which he'd recount her many sins and errors. Like, yes. and, and every week he would have a, a new update. And uh, you know, Mr. He despite was just his flirting with her. despite his website, Mr. Weiner and or Weiner is a private citizen, so I don't want to be too specific, but. Um, this uh, Portland area retailer actually knew Mr. Weiner. He uh, he worked in a plastic store. Really? And no, the the our correspondent, not Mr. Weiner. And during this time, he saw a very strange man in the store, uh, kind of a uh, a feminine guy in a in a who was always wearing extremely hand embroidered shirts about with cats on them. And right. often with his elderly mother, um, who would come in and uh, and hang out at the plastic store, and uh, <laughs> he often had a a jacket, an embroidered jacket with fireworks. Ooh. The word fireworks over a picture of fireworks that which he wore over his um, cat themed embroidered shirts. Uh huh. Um, and he had a car with a license plate that said Whiskas, named for one of his cats. <laughs> and this man, not named for the cat food. And this man, as they knew from uh, from a, a check or a credit card, and which they remembered because the name was funny, was Mister Herb Weiner. So he was very surprised to hear that this uh, former patron of his store, former client, was also leading a secret life as a as an anti Marilyn Vos Savant crusader. Wow. So that you know, I I hope that doesn't. I hope that's not too personal about Marilyn's number one hater. 
But uh, there are a million stories in the Naked City. Is, Por- is Portland the Naked City? Yeah, I mean, it, it has more naked people on bicycles than most cities. There but, aren't a million people in Portland, so some of those people have to have more than one story. Some of them are in Gresham, and uh, like, how far out do you have to get to get to a million? If you get out to Gresham and Beaverton, can you no, get to a million? No, I don't think you're at a million. You got to get. You got to include Oswego. Salem. I think you got to go to Salem. What is the? I mean, the population of Oregon isn't much more than a million. Oregon. Population. Isn't that a good oh, thing? Oh, it's on a... four million. Woo. You know what? You can actually get uh, the Portland metro area, which is extremely expansive, and I'll tell you how expensive. Actually, gets you to two and a half million. No kidding. And how expensive is it? It does though? not get down to it does not get down to Salem. But oh wait, it, but it goes to it Vancouver. Go, it goes out to Vancouver. Yeah, yeah that's Vancouver what it gets you. Tips it over. It's got Hillsborough and and Gresham and Beaverton and all the all the Multnomah County. Um, Washington has Suburbs. almost twice as many people as Oregon, and Oregon has more than twice as many people as Idaho. But why do we have twice as much of their smoke right now? Actually, we don't. They have they have twice as much of their as their smoke as as well. Can you can you imagine? Uh, what, at first, I'm surprised that Idaho only has 1.7 million people. But then I I reflect on Idaho, and I'm not at all surprised <laughs> because of its in, its enormousness. There's nothing in Idaho. I mean, oh, you're you're surprised at how small the number is. Yeah, I mean, there's Boise and there's Sandpoint and there's Idaho Falls, and to a lesser degree, there's Pocatello. There's Great Falls, and there's there's the uh, Twin Falls. There's Twin Falls. Oh no, Great Falls isn't in Idaho. There's Twin Falls. Great Falls and Idaho is Montana. Falls. And there's uh, there's all the, the Great Falls. They've, the, got, they've the, got all the best falls. The Lewiston Clarkston metropolis there on either side. Uh, oh, Lewiston has this, a Clarkston. They're, they're right across the river from each other. Yeah, Nevada should have like a Siegfriedville and a Royville. <laughs> I didn't realize that Lewiston had a Clarkston. It does. Yeah, Lewiston the bigger of the two, but Clarkston right right there. They can you know they can uh, they talk to each other through a system of cans and string. Entry 525.PR2606, certificate number 51969, German telegrams. At some point in this entry, we were talking about English expressions that mean different things on opposite sides of the Atlantic. Um, uh, we mentioned, I think, you know, to table, to table a, uh, an agenda item means to bring it forward right. in Britain, whereas it means to set it aside here. Um, Robert is a uh, British subject married to a uh, native Afrikaans speaker, a South African uh, partner. Uh, and he agrees with our take on just now. And he says quite good doesn't quite mean bad in English, but it's the faintest possible phrase. Right. Uh, faintest bad, possible but, phrase. But I just said it was the faintest phrase. The faintest possible praise. The there faintest possible praise. Phase. Phrase. The, paint, paint the faintest fra- possible. Gonna, let me paint this phrase with faint praise, okay. John. Hmm. Uh, if in the right tone of voice, I guess quite good in the mouth of a British person can really mean barely acceptable. Yeah. Oh, it's quite good. But like uh, in the right tone, it can also convey what it usually does in America, which is surprisingly good. It's quite good. Which I think is what we mean. Right. Like I didn't think that movie or uh, Indian restaurant or whatever would be good. It's oh, quite good. It's quite good. More Instead than of, I thought. It's quite good. And, he's, and he said his first time in the States, he was confused by how enthusiastic oh, American yeah. English speakers That's were. It's quite good. It's quite good. Um. 
the the thing the South America versus Britain confusion is South Africa. Sorry, yes, yeah, sorry. Did I say South America? Yes. The South African versus British confusion is the phrase "just now," because in most of the English speaking world, "just now" means in the very immediate past. Right. Um, I saw her just now. Whereas in South African English, it's been influenced by the Afrikaans direct translation "net now." Which means at some unspecified point in the future, oh. possibly never. So it's more of a manana kind oh, of a thing. Inshallah. Um, and Afrikaans also has no, no, which means, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, pretty soon. But, you know, Dutch vowels, we always get wrong on the right. show. New, which, new. which means pretty soon, but not as soon as you'd like. So it's, it's, um, it's nearer than net, no. Yeah, near. And that has shifted across to South African English as now, now. So in South African, there's direct translations of both just now and now, now. And they both mean not in the past, but in the future. Now, now. Uh, he, he, he added the phrase, thanks a lot, which he, he feels is very different in Britain versus America. What, do they say thanks a lot and they mean it earnestly? Because we almost never mean it earnestly. That's right? exactly right. When British people say thanks a lot, they mean many thanks. Yes. Whereas we, My deepest gratitude. We say it as... Go F yourself. Yeah, which, as few thanks as possible. Thanks uh, a lot. Oh, no, wait. It's the other way around. Oh. It's the other way around. The British... Sorry. Americans it. will use it sometimes sincerely. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Only Chris Walla from Death Cab for Cutie actually says it that way. He says thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Uh, but I guess in Britain, it is never used unsarcastically. It's always meant ironically. I guess. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. That's, I don't think of I don't think of thanks as being a particularly British coinage anyway. A lot or no. Because they would say ta, ta very much. Yeah, they'd say. On the same topic we heard from Mike, an American married to a British woman, uh, and he said he wanted to add the phrase quite like mm-hmm. to our discussion of English phrases that Great. mean opposite things on both sides of the Atlantic. I guess if you don't want to I guess it's the same as quite good. He told his mother-in-law that he quite liked the dinner. Right. And he meant, I liked it very much. And she took it as an insult. Yeah. And that means, in Britain, if you quite like something, it means you right. You barely like it. I, I quite like it. Which yeah. is interesting. How can quite not be an intensifier? Well, where is the, where is the extra uh, I in aluminum? <laughs> it went into quite. <laughs> Entry 121.DA0403, certificate number 50861, billboards. Just as a quick aside in that entry, we wondered if the Wienermobile was still around. Yes. And Jeff on Facebook posted a picture from his hometown of Bozeman, Montana, where the Wienermobile had recently visited. Oh, really? Yes. So he had photographic evidence, Loch Ness Monster style, that the Wienermobile is still uh, applying the highways and byways of this great land. Bozeman. I got an email about Bozeman just today. You're having a little Bozeman Meinhof Just syndrome. like a, what the heck is going on with these with all this Bozeman? Bozeman's really getting his name out there. Great job, Bozeman. You know what, Bozeman? It's about time. Bozeman's a nice little city. Yeah, it is. Um, the, uh, we had well, a, you know, actually, the email I got was about the, the Wienermobile? No, it was about the fact that Bozeman is... Uh, has traditionally been uh, the the census has adjudicated that Bozeman has a population between ten and forty nine thousand people, making it it's a broad sub swing. city. And the latest census 
is tipping Bozeman over 50,000. 50,000 is the cutoff. And at, at 50,000, it becomes metropolitan. And potentially, at that point, they're going to get an extra congressperson. And so this letter from my correspondent uh, was talking to me about... Um, so when we were talking Bozeman about so we were talking about the Portland metropolitan area just now, fifty thousand is the cutoff to be an official metro area in the United States, according to yes, uh, according to a this metro, writer. A metropolitan statistical area is any U.S. county or county equivalent, if you're in Alaska or Louisiana, that has at least one area, urban area of at least fifty thousand population. That's right. Wow, very exciting for whatever county Bozeman's in. Uh, well, let's see. This letter is from. Uh, friend of the program, Sarah Vowell, who is writing an article about the decline of Bozeman for the New York Times, and she wanted me to comment on all of the great American cities that I know that once were great and now are terrible. And Bozeman's not one of them. Bozeman's great. Bozeman is still great, but she is Gallatin saying— County, by the way. She's saying here that, um, that Bozeman has attracted a bunch of tech dollars. The tech people have— bought up all the cool stuff and turned it into oh. uncool stuff. And that gradually the uh, increasing wealth of Bozeman has turned it into not as cool a Bozeman as we, we, we once knew. There's really a narrow sweet spot we want, huh? Cities that are not too poor or not too rich. And that's what she's, that that's kind of what she's asking here. Can I comment on where the, where we want, what, what, what is the level of a of a, a city where tech companies want to come in because there's abundant warehouse space for their cool startups with like free M and M's, but where they're 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 not successful enough that they've ruined it for everyone else, where they chased all the bands out. Uh, I also could not remember during that entry the name of the uh, wall drug equivalent of the American South. That you you know the roadside attraction that you see oh, the yeah. bumper stickers and signs for when you're 100 miles away. And yeah, it was Schmagigli. I got a bunch of people, uh, including Michael, telling me that it's uh, south of the border. Oh, of just, course, just across the just across the the border into South Carolina. Near, south of the border, near the town of Dillon. Of course, um, Michael was also one of two people. Michael and Kyle both emailed to say that during the billboards entry, they were waiting on the edge of their seats for us to talk about Ted Turner. Do you know the connection? Do you know the, Ted? The Turner Media Empire began with him taking over his dad's struggling billboard. Uh, Turner Advertising Company, just some local billboard advertising business. Really? And he parlayed that into that first TV he, station. He, he turned it into a huge, the largest billboard company in the Southeast. Then he started buying radio stations. Then he bought a UHF TV station. Uh, then he turned it into a super station over satellite. And then that's when, only then did the Turner Advertising Company become the Turner Broadcasting System where we could all watch um, sitcom reruns and Braves games. We really should do an omnibus on on the Turner Broadcasting System. I mean, when you think about how that created the 24-hour news cycle and therefore uh, kind of ruined the American public space. Right. Uh, on really, on every axis. It all started with billboards. And Turner started in 1965, and he was a pretty young dude, 27 years old. So thank you, Michael and Kyle, for reminding us of really the most pernicious effect of billboards, which is that through a weird game of telephone, they gave us, uh, well, QAnon, really. Right. 
Um, here, here. The most sustained, the most interesting conversation we had on Twitter about the billboards entry was we mentioned Spencer Cox, uh, Utah's current lieutenant governor, who had won. I had been in Utah and observed all the Republican primary billboards. Right. And, and his billboards were green and yellow, right? Was that the yes? Which I thought was very unusual in, uh, especially not at Utah, not a state you'd think would be the one messing around with the standard red, white, and blue iconography of conservative political messaging. Although you never know what Utah's going to do, am I right? Maybe that's because that's the state where they take your patriotism so much for granted that you don't have to reinforce it with flag colors. Name another state that has. I mean, the Utah Beehive is such a. Uh, it's a it's a little graphic element that's in everything Utah from the road signs. It's on the state flag. It's the the state highways are in the shape of a beehive. Name another state that has an aminal uh, so prominently featured in their in their logography. I mean, the ones that come close are the Wolverines of Michigan, the, the Beavers the of bear, Oregon, oh, Beavers of Oregon, the, the Bear on the California flag, the Badgers. But most of these are more uh, college football than actual. Um, infrastructure or or um public uh what branding of of government and yeah and uh most of those creatures are solitary furry mammals too they're not like like uh like diligent little hive creatures and then florida has plenty of gators in the souvenir stores but none in the not on the on the road the signs roads, right? yeah um, but Utah's really loving their beehive. Anyway, you were saying about the lieutenant governor. Uh, I think we mentioned at the time that he follows me on Twitter. Right. And maybe you even asked if he if he knew about Omnibus. And shortly after the day the uh, billboards entry uh, was released in our time zone, he uh, he tweeted, uh, yes, I am a listener. <laughs> I, I don't, maybe, maybe a staffer turned him on to it. But the same day... Wow. He saw that we were talking about his campaign, and he gave us a little extra information. He pointed out that, uh, as Utah voters would have known, but I could not tell from the billboards, the green and yellow uh, campaign material was actually green and goldenrod, and it's specifically the John the John Deere farm equipment colors. Oh. He wanted to he, – he runs as the small town kid oh, the rural who made good – he actually does, does a bus tour of all the little Utah towns that – that Huntsman wouldn't visit. Uh, and is that a true characterization? Is he really a John Deere riding, uh, kid of the prairie? Well, you know, when you look at him, mountain prairie, you know, he, he just looks like your kind of standard clean cut, uh, LDS kid who now runs a tech company probably. Or, right. um, uh, but you know, he looks like maybe he got off his, uh, his Mormon mission in Bolivia like eight minutes ago. So he's got bona fides of, uh, of, of like, Jumping out of hay bales? Yes, he is actually from Fairview, Utah, uh, which is in, I believe it's San Pete County, uh, a really small central Utah county. I mean, Manti is the biggest city there. Uh, so he, you know, he comes by his, you know, even though it's just an hour south of Provo, he comes by his small town Utah cred legitimately. And he says that the, the, uh, the Idaho gubernatorial race was recently won by a candidate using the same yellow and green color scheme. So he thinks maybe now that it's two and O that, uh, political wonks and campaign managers are going to be more attuned to the possibilities for a broader color spectrum, which I, for one, I'm not into. 
No. Uh, red to me, red and blue yeah. means Politics. I'm wa- I'm watching some kind of uh, TV debate or, or you know looking at a at a electoral map or yeah. You know, I, I don't want that muddied by some guy with purple signs. Now, for me, anyone who hails from the west side of the mountains in Utah can't really claim to be a, a rural Utahan unless they're from way down. Unless they came from somewhere where they got irradiated as babies. Yeah, that's right. If you're in the if you're in the the plume, if you're downwind of the of the test zone, then sure. But otherwise, I want to hear from the people in Utah who are from the right side of the mountains. Well, they all, uh, I don't think they're going to be running for statewide office because they're all uh, trying to get the United Nations out of the water and the, <laughs> the pedophiles and the gay frogs out of, the, right. out of Netflix. That, those are the Utahns I trust to tell me the straight scoop. They know what's happening. Entry 386 dot ec0804 certificate number 24409 the duke d'anjou uh, inarguably the greatest episode of of the omnibus fan favorite podcast we mentioned briefly the micro nation of andorra yes between located between france and spain in the pyrenees i could go on and on about andorra i should have chosen that as a topic instead of the duke d'anjou well, I should have kept my mouth shut about it because I incorrectly said during the show that the heads of state of Andorra are by joint agreement the heads of state of France and Spain who are jointly the co-princes of Andorra. And I heard from multiple people, including... The Prince uh, of Andorra? In, including Jesse. <laughs> yes, including <laughs> His Highness the Prince of Andorra. Uh, that that's only true on the French side. In, in France, oh. it was the King of France... Who is also the co-prince of Andorra T- today? In the absence of a monarchy, he's been replaced by the head of state currently, Emmanuel Macron. But on the Spanish side, it is not, in fact, the king or head of government of Spain. It is the Bishop of Urgell, oh, a Roman Catholic diocese of Catalonia that also includes Andorra. Oh, so isn't that like that's the head of state? Is the or the 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 figurehead of state? Yeah, the head of state of Andorra is always a just bishop. A, 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 a Roman Catholic bishop of a not especially important uh, diocese. Huh. So I guess there a are— A freak of, of history. It really is. And I, I had never, it had never occurred to me, I guess, that you know one way to be a head of state is to be the bishop of Rome. The pope is the head of state of the Vatican, right? which is a legit nation. But also, just some minor bishop, currently Juan Enrique Vives Sicilia— and I'm sure I'll get corrected on that, mm-hmm. um, who just happens to be this northern Spanish bishop, also uh, is the head of state of Andorra for as long as he's there. He holds wow. the rank of archbishop and monarch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I'm sure he spends almost none of his day doing the head of state job. Right. Although, I mean, when I think of Andorra, I think of it being really oriented toward the French side. It's um You think Macron's uh, really running the show and just telling this guy what to do? The 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 whole as you approach as you enter Andorra from the French side, you you definitely feel like ta-da Andorra and it's just one like beautiful vista after another and then there's the big resort at the top and then you cross over the top. I've never been. 
to the Spanish side, and it's just some crazy roads leading down into Spain. So either the bishop is the is the puppet master, not only behind the throne, but actually behind the nation of Andorra, literally behind it in the in the um, in the on the lee side, or or the Spanish are kind of priced out of what's going on in Andorra. Well, I mean, historically, the French side would have been the defense of Europe against the the swarthy Iberian mobs coming up from the south. Right. So it would have it would have existed more as a um, bulwark, a bulwark of Christendom on the French side, I guess. Yeah, I think of it more at ge- geographically, like the the um, the the va- the lovely valley is on the French side, and the other and side Spain is just got the a cliff. Yeah. Well, maybe that explains why the bishop is not. Uh, well, maybe he just needs to put more time into it. Yeah, right. You know, carve out a little bit. Carve out a staircase. Would you spend <laughs> at least spend like part of your day on Andorra? I wonder if that is a very prized. Um, uh, what's the adjective form of bishop? Obispal? Oh, I, I don't know. I wonder if that's a very uh, sought after bishop assignment. Bishopric. Yeah, but that's not the adjective. Like, I wonder if, you know, disproportionate to its actual uh, congregation because... You get to be a monarch. You get to be a monarch. You get to be a co-prince. I, I wonder I, if people fight over that. Because because bishoprics are granted not to... It's not a thing where the guy comes up in the local administration and takes over so much as it is something where you get assigned that, right? You you, you move around. I think, yeah, I think Vatican politics... Lands, bishops, and archbishops where they go, and I wonder whether, that's what I learned from the young pope. Anyway, yeah, is it a is it like a prize posting, or is it something where that's where the pedophiles go? Oh, episcopal, of course. Oh, sure, episcopal is the adjectival form of bishop. Yeah, I don't think it's. Uh, you don't want a pedophile to be your co-prince. Yeah, yeah, right, right. If I was Macron, I'd be super mad if they assigned me a new co-prince and he was a dope. Yeah, that's right. That's not what you would want. I wonder how much, how often they get together. And like, they each have to sign the paper. Like, right? is, is Macron even there once a year? <laughs> Just checking in on uh, how everything's going with my uh, with my co-princedom. Uh-huh. Entry 206.LV2733. Certificate number 48966. Change of gauge. We really brought the train spotters out on this one, didn't we? Oh boy, lots of ba- uh, additional train knowledge coming up. Yeah, I, I I read something on Facebook where somebody was like, "John forgot to account for the quarter inch of uh, extra gauge in the one train." Boy, is your face red right now? <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." Let's go. Bring it on. Joe Lyon on Facebook. This is actually my mistake. You were talking about new vacuum train technology. Right. And I started talking about Elon Musk and Hyperloop. Right. But Joe says that that's probably not you were what you were talking about at all. You were talking about a hypothetical technology called gravity train. I was talking about that. The ones that go straight through the center of the earth. Yes. It's a, it's a, it is a, the tunnel is a vacuum, but unlike a Hyperloop, proposed Hyperloop technology... The train connects two points on the Earth's surface, not in the arc of going over the surface, but just in a 
straight line, a cord through the edge of the circle. Right, basically. powered by gravity, the train can you're, reach you're, you're terminal falling, velocity. You're falling down away from New York, and then you f- somehow fall back up to L.A., and you're falling the whole time, and so that really all, almost no external power required except for the USB plugs for your phone in the right. passenger cars. Um, no friction on the – the problem is you need no friction on the tracks, and I don't know if we have that today. Well, you that would be maglev, probably, right? I mean, you, maglev gets you close to zero friction. Is it? Is it probably not zero friction? I mean, because if you don't get all the way to guess what happens, right. you, you get it's, right outside of LA. You get to <laughs> you get to San Bernardino, and then you start heading back to New York, <laughs> and then you wind up, uh, you know, a thousand feet under Omaha. Yeah, a thousand worse, miles, a thousand worse. miles under a thousand Omaha. miles under Omaha. It's not really a practical technology, so I don't think we're in any risk of getting stuck. He says that if if it were to work, the coolest part is the math. No matter which two locations on Earth you connect, the travel time is actually identical. What? It doesn't matter if you're going between uh, DC to New York, New York to London, London to Tokyo, even two places that are very close to each other. Every trip takes just under forty minutes. Because the way the math works out, you know, you, a tra- if you're going to a part that's further away, of course, the track will seem to slant downward more rapidly uh, and therefore deliver you to the bottom of the arc and then back up uh, in a faster time. Of course, the longer the leg is, I mean, if, you, if you're going between Spain and New Zealand, for example, you'd literally be going through the center of the earth. So right. there are some engineering problems that become harder than how do you keep... Uh, how do you get a frictionless track and no air resistance in the tunnel? How do you get a frictionless track, no air resistance, and go through the center of the earth? The third one is the hardest. Yeah. But, you know, for uh, transcontinental rides, you can probably stay in the, you know, in the, in the crust of the earth. Or at That's least. why the math is the, is the funnest part. We also heard from some historical change of gauge anecdotes. Uh, Andrew noted some fascinating civil U.S. Civil War history related to change of gauge, which I don't think came up on the show. Um, the North and the South had different railway gauges. Right. And they would try to, you know, they would switch the gauge of a railway to their advantage so that, you know, the trains of the other side would have to stay out of that new territory, only to lose if they ever lost the territory. Then the new uh, occupying army would tear up the old track and build track of their gauge. Lol. Um, so some places just went back and forth and back and forth over the course of the war. This never happens in um, in the general with Buster Keaton. He manages to get back and forth over the lines <laughs> in the same gauge of railway. But he's, Andrew notes that by the end of the war, the South had just whole yards of useless equipment of, you know, pulled up rail of various gauges because of all the switching around. Right. Um, and the South lost the gauge wars in that case when the Union... Took over, they... Uh, that wasn't the main war they lost. Right, right. But, but but in addition to the... It's not the main war unless you're somebody that works for the railroads in the South, unless you are you work on the Danville train. And you care more about that than slavery because right. you're a monster, well, I guess. Well, just, you're just a, you're a train guy. On the uh, Speaking of train guys, James uh, wrote in to note that um, as a result of change of gauge, well, as a result of tunnel issues... You probably knew this. Amtrak has two completely separate fleets right now due to loading gauge issues. You know, they would love to run those big double-decker superliner trains, the ones yeah. you see out west. Yeah. Um, they'd love to have those back east, 
too, but those trains will not fit through the old tunnels getting into New York City. Isn't that crazy? If not for the if not for these 100, 150 year old tunnels or whatever in New York, uh, they could run those on the East Coast too. Well, and we're we so much of the American rail system doesn't have the right track bed for truly fast trains. So you can buy you may all those Acela trains back east that they buy from Spain are capable yeah, of going two hundred miles, miles an hour. Miles an hour right? But <laughs> but they have to go through Philadelphia where the track is all, you know, like hammered into place by uh by John Henry. And uh and so the train you know, there are all these crazy speed limits where it's like, well, the train could go 200 miles an hour, but it has to go 22 miles an hour. Is that why we have more derailments than uh, uh, other more industrialized nations? Uh, we just haven't, you know, there are so many reasons why we can't upgrade the um, the quality of the track. And it, and it varies from place to place and, and problem to problem. But Here's a very unusual case of that. This was uh, James's, one of his favorite... Uh, weird train gauge problems right now is the Howard Street Tunnel in Baltimore. Do you do you know about that? <laughs> Excuse me. Because I'm tight. The Howard Street Tunnel in Baltimore. Yes. No, although I've been on the train through Baltimore so many times, I'm wondering if I've been through it. So Baltimore is one of the only ports on the Northeast where the harbor is actually deep enough to handle these new Panamax uh, ships that can go through the newly expanded mm-hmm. Panama Canal. Here, here. I'm a, um, I'm a Baltimore booster. So a lot of these container ships come into Baltimore, and you'd want them on double-stack trains, uh, right? Um, right. Ordinarily. Unfortunately, to get out of the port of Baltimore is an 1890s tunnel that goes right under downtown Baltimore's Howard Street, and the tunnel is not tall enough to accommodate double-stack containers. So anything heading south and west from Baltimore has to be either single-stacked, making the, the train much more efficient, or you have to send it out of the port north to Albany and then backtrack it. Uh, they want to expand the tunnel to allow for two containers double-stacked. However... Unfortunately, it's right below the busy downtown street of Howard, and right under it is the Baltimore Metro. Uh, so they're sandwiched immediately in between these two things that really cannot be moved. Uh, they can't lower the floor. They can't raise the ceiling. Um, the governor apparently has finally got some funding approved to maybe just get the, the few inches they need through some kind of fancy engineering. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's the same problem that Amtrak has in Baltimore as the, the South approach to their Penn station on the Northeast corridor has to go through these 150 year old tunnels that are falling apart. The, the, uh, the Howard street tunnel was one of, um, that there was a there was a derailment that happened in it that sparked like a it was a, one of those great things that you always hope happens in a city where you have a derailment in a tunnel right under the city of a chemical train and it sparked a fire that burned for like a week. Ugh. Pretty bad. Entry 515.LA0345. Certificate number 26561. The Garbage Barge. We talked for the second time in this entry about the Dutch word kill. Yeah. For a creek. Yes. Like Fishkill, New York. Crick. A crick, sorry. I don't want to confuse anybody. Uh-huh. 
a crick is a is a kill. I guess a creek would be a keel. A crick is a kill. Uh, we heard from a listener named John that we in both times we've mentioned Dutch kills on the program. We have never mentioned the most famous place name to derive from that, which is the Catskills. <gasps> I as a kid, I think I always thought of it as cat skills, like yeah, um, like like being able to jump, like, like following a. A laser pointer or, uh, yeah. or pushing your butthole into somebody's face. My cat sits uh, by the back door watching the hummingbirds and chatters. Have you ever had a cat that chattered? <laughs> it just talks to them? Well, no. The, the it's, it's so excited that its oh. teeth clack together <laughs> watching the hummingbirds. And the hummingbirds know she's there and they taunt her. You know, there are these Northwest hummingbirds that are- Hummingbirds are mean. Yeah, that just like, they'll just hover right in front of her and just stare at her, knowing that she can't get to I bet, them. like, the, the beautiful, like, Caribbean hummingbirds are super chill, but the Northwest ones we have are hardy and therefore yeah, mean. The, these these hummingbirds have to survive all kinds of indignities. Uh, yeah, I see them I see them bobbing through the, the forest fire smoke right now. I see them, like, zooming up and down like helicopters, mm-hmm. presumably trying to find- <laughs> Breathable air. Um, yeah, he uh, John uh, traces this back to the 1650 Janssen Vischer map of New Netherlands, which he, by the way, he suggests as a uh, as a possible omnibus topic in its own, on its own right because it's such a uh, influential New World map. Right. But the land on that map, the land west of the Hudson River, kind of north of where Woodstock is today, is called Land van Katzkill. Huh. And, you know, the usual explanation is that this was a creek where there were a bunch of big cats, that there were, as the, as the settlers would have said, catamounts, bobcats and panthers living there. Um, and I guess he says that's a little bit disputed today because many people will tell you that there really weren't any big cats living in upstate New York when the Dutch got there in the 17th century. Medium-sized cats. He has original research. Yeah, they could have just been house cats, I guess, running around. Uh-huh. Did the Indians keep cats? Lynx. The Lost of the Mohicans and his and his cat whiskers. I have never heard of any kind of pre-contact cat culture in the United States, and I really feel like that would have been something the internet would have discovered. But then I don't. Was think- there dog culture? Yeah. Yes, right? Yeah, they hunted with dogs. Yeah, they had domesticated dogs. But uh, who, I mean, what was the first house cat to come to the Americas? Had to come with the Spanish. I'm sure there's a, a, a kind of a treacly children's book about it. The first house cat. Calvin, the first American cat. Yeah, it must have been named something like Isabella. I mean, I'm sure they had them pretty quick. Um, all those transatlantic ships had cats on them to, for, to fight the, the rats, rodents, right? right? And there must have been a fluffy cat that belonged to the captain. John has some original scholarship to offer here. He's been reading a a short story collection by a young Stephen Crane, who would go on to write The Red Badge of Courage, among other uh, pioneering works of naturalism, uh, who worked as a reporter in Hartwood, New York in the 1890s. And there are lots of local stories in this collection that have panthers in them. Uh, so, you know, even though Crane doesn't call them the Catskills, he just calls it Sullivan County, like in the 1890s, people were still t- talking about the, uh, the Panthers they used to hunt up there that gave the Catskills, not Catskills, their current name. Oh. Huh. 
So if you're saying cat skills, like I always used to. It's cats kills. Cats kills. And I hope you'll join us in pronouncing it that way from cats now on. Cats kills. Cats kills. Cats kills. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda Volume 11. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.